Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today, chapters 16 and 17, from Kidnapped, by Robert Louis Stevenson. And now, chapter 16, The Lad with the Silver Button Across Morven. There's a regular ferry from Torrisay to Kinlochaline on the mainland. Both shores of the Sound are in the country of the strong clan of the Maclean's, and the people that passed the ferry with me were almost all of that clan. The skipper of the boat, on the other hand, was called Neil Roy McCrobb, and since McCrobb was one of the names of Alan's clansmen, and Alan himself had sent me to that ferry, I was eager to come to private speech with Neil Roy. In the crowded boat this was, of course, impossible, and the passage was a very slow affair. There was no wind, and as the boat was wretchedly equipped, we could pull but two oars on one side and one on the other. The men gave way, however, with a good will, the passengers taking spells to help them, and the whole company giving the time in Gaelic boat songs. And what with the songs, and the sea air, and the good nature, and the spirit of all concerned, and the bright weather, the passage was a pretty thing to have seen. But there was one melancholy part. In the mouth of Lacaline we found a great sea-going ship at anchor, and this I supposed at first to be one of the king's cruisers which we kept along that coast, both summer and winter, to prevent communication with the French. As we got a little nearer, it became plain she was a ship of merchandise, and what still more puzzled me, not only her decks, but the sea beach also, were quite black with people, and skiffs were continually plying to and fro between them. Yet nearer, and there began to come to our ears a great sound of mourning, the people on board and those on the shore crying and lamenting one to another, so as to pierce the heart. Then I understood this was an emigrant ship bound for the American colonies." We put the ferryboat alongside, and the exiles leaned over the bulwarks, weeping and reaching out their hands to my fellow passengers, among whom they counted some near friends. How long this might have gone on, I don't know, for they seemed to have no sense of time. But at last the captain of the ship, who seemed near beside himself, and no great wonder, in the midst of this crying and confusion, came to the side and begged us to depart. Thereupon Neil sheared off, and the chief singer in our boat struck into a melancholy air, which was presently taken up both by the emigrants and their friends upon the beach, so that it sounded from all sides like a lament for the dying. 
I saw the tears run down the cheeks of the men and women in the boat, even as they bent at the oars, and the circumstances and the music of the song, which is one called Lockaber No More, were highly affecting, even to myself. At Kenlockaline I got Neil Roy upon one side of the beach, and said I made sure he was one of Appen's men. "'And what for no?' said he. "'I am seeking somebody,' said I, "'and it comes in my mind that you will have news of him. "'Alan Breck Stewart is his name. "'And very foolishly, instead of showing him the button, "'I sought to pass a shilling in his hand. "'At this he drew back. "'I am very much affronted,' he said, "'and this is not the way that one gentleman "'should behave to another at all. "'The man you ask for is in France, "'but if he was in my Sporan, says he, "'and your belly full of shillings, "'I would not hurt a hair upon his body. "'I saw I had gone the wrong way to work, "'and without wasting time upon apologies, "'showed in the button lying in the hollow of my palm. "'A wheel,' said Neil, "'and I think you might have begun with that end of the stick, "'whatever. "'But if you are the lad with the silver button, "'all is well, "'and I have the word to see that you come safe. "'But if you will pardon me to speak plainly,' says he, "'there is a name that you should never take into your mouth.' "'and that is the name of Alan Breck. "'And there is a thing that ye would never do, "'and that is to offer your dirty money "'to a Highland gentleman.' "'It was not very easy to apologize, "'for I could scarce tell him what was the truth, "'that I'd never dreamed he would set up to be a gentleman "'until he told me so. "'Neil on his part had no wish to prolong his dealings with me, "'only to fulfill his orders and be done with it, "'and he made haste to give me my route.' This was to lie the night in Kinlochaline, in the public inn, to cross Morven the next day to Ardgore, and lie the night in the house of one John of the Claymore, who was warned that I might come. The third day, to be set across one lock at Coran and another at Balakalish, and then ask my way to the house of James of the Glens at Ockham in Dura of Appen. There was a good deal of ferrying, as you hear, the sea in all this part running deep into the mountains and winding about their roots. It makes the country strong to hold, and difficult to travel, but full of prodigious, wild, and dreadful prospects. I had some other advice from Neil, to speak with no one by the way, to avoid Whigs, Campbells, and the Red Soldiers, to leave the road and lie in a bush if I saw any of the latter coming, for it was never chancing to meet in with them, and in brief, to conduct myself like a robber or a Jacobite agent, as perhaps Neil thought me. The inn at Kenlockaline was the most beggarly vile place that ever pigs were styed in, full of smoke, vermin, and silent highlanders. I was not only discontented with my lodging, but with myself for my mismanagement of Neil, and thought I could hardly be worse off. But, very wrongly, as I was soon to see, for I had not been half an hour at the inn, standing in the door most of the time to ease my eyes from the peat smoke, when a thunderstorm came close by, the springs broke in a little hill on which the inn stood, "'and one end of the house became a running water. "'Places of public entertainment were bad enough "'all over Scotland in those days, "'yet it was a wonder to myself "'when I had to go from the fireside to the bed in which I slept, "'wading over the shoes. "'Early in my next day's journey "'I overtook a little, stout, solemn man "'walking very slowly with his toes turned out, "'sometimes reading in a book, "'and sometimes marking the place with his finger, "'and dressed decently and plainly "'in something of a clerical style.' This I found to be another catechist, but of a different order from the blind men of Mull, being indeed one of those sent out by the Edinburgh Society for Propagating Christian Knowledge to evangelize the more savage places of the Highlands. His name was Henderland, 
he spoke with the broad South Country tongue, which I was beginning to weary for the sound of, and besides common countryship, we soon found we had a more particular bond of interest. For my good friend, the minister of Essendine, had translated into the Gaelic in his spare time a number of hymns and pious books which Henderland used in his work, and held in great esteem. Indeed, it was one of these he was carrying and reading when we met. We fell in company at once, our ways lying together as far as to King Ehrlich. As we went, he stopped and spoke with all the wayfarers and workers that we met or passed, and though of course I could not tell what they discoursed about, yet I judged Mr. Henderland must be well liked in the countryside, for I observed many of them to bring out their moles and share a pinch of snuff with him. I told him as far as in my affairs as I judged wise, as far, that is, as they were none of Allen's, and gave Balakalish as the place I was traveling to, to meet a friend, for I thought Ockham, or even Durer, would be too particular, and I might put him on the scent. On his part, he told me much of his work, and the people he worked among, the hiding priests and Jacobites, the disarming act, the dress, and many other curiosities of the time and place. He seemed moderate, blaming Parliament in several points, and especially because they had framed the act more severely against those who wore the dress than against those who carried weapons. This moderation put it in my mind to question him of the Red Fox and the Appen Tenants, questions which, I thought, would seem natural enough in the mouth of one traveling to that country. He said it was a bad business. It's wonderful, said he, where the tenants find the money, for their life is mere starvation. You don't carry such a thing as snuff, do you, Mr. Balfour? No? Well, I'm better wanting it. But these tenants, as I was saying, are doubtless partly driven to it. James Stewart and Durer, that's what they call James of the Glens, is half-brother to Ardgeel, the captain of the clan, and he's a man much looked up to, and drives very hard. And then there's one they also call Alan Breck. Ah, I cried, what of him? What of the wind that bloweth where it listeth, said Hedland. He's here and away, here today and gone tomorrow, a fair heather cat. "'He might be glowering at the two of us out of yon windbush, "'and I would no wonder. "'You'll no carry such a thing as snuff, will ye?' "'I told him no, and that he had asked the same thing more than once. "'It's highly possible,' said he, sighing. "'But it seems strange you should not carry it. "'However, as I was saying, this Alan Breck is a bold, desperate customer, "'and well kept to be James's right hand. "'His life is forfeit already. "'He would boggle at nothing.' "'and maybe, if Tenant Body was to hang back, "'he could get a dirk in his wame. "'You make a poor story of it all, Mr. Henderland,' said I. "'It is all fear upon both sides. "'I care to hear no more of it.' "'Nay,' said Mr. Henderland, "'but there's love, too, "'and self-denial that should put the like of you and me to shame. "'There's something fine about it. "'No, perhaps Christian, but humanly fine. "'Even Alan Breck, by all that I hear,' "'is a chill to be respected. "'There's many a lion's snack-draw sits close in Kirk "'and stands well in the world's eye, "'and maybe is a far worse man, Mr. Balfour, "'than yon misguided shedder of man's blood. "'Aye, aye, we might take a lesson by them. "'You'll perhaps think I've been too long in the Highlands,' "'he added, smiling to me. "'I told him not at all, "'that I'd seen much to admire among the Highlanders, "'and if he came to that, "'Mr. Campbell himself was a Highlander.' "'Aye,' said he, "'that's true. "'It's a fine blood. "'And what is the king's agent about?' I asked. "'Colin Campbell? 
said Henderland. "'Putting his head in a bee's bike. "'He is to turn the tenants out by force, I hear,' said I. "'Yes,' said he. "'But the business has gone back and forth, as folks say. First James of Glens rode to Edinburgh and got some lawyer, "'a steward, no doubt. "'They all hang together like bats in a steeple. "'And had the proceedings stayed. "'And then Colin Campbell came in again, "'and had the upper hand before the barons of Exchequer. "'And now they tell me the first of the tenants are to leave tomorrow.' "'It's to begin a durer under James' very windows, "'which does not seem wise by the humble way of it.' "'Do you think they'll fight?' I asked. "'Well,' says Henderland, "'they're disarmed, or supposed to be, "'for there's still a good deal of cold iron lying by in quiet places. "'And then Colin Campbell has the sodgers coming. "'But for all that, if I was his lady wife, "'I'd not be well pleased till I got him home again. "'They're queer customers, the Appen Stewarts.' "'I asked if they were worse than their neighbors. "'No, they,' said he, "'and that's the worst part of it. "'For if Colin Roy can get his business done in Appen, "'he has it all to begin again in the next country, "'which they call Memor, "'and which is one of the countries of the Camerons. "'He's king's factor upon both, "'and from both he has to drive out the tenants. "'And indeed, Mr. Balfour, "'to be open with you, "'it's my belief that if he escapes the one lot, "'he'll get his death by the other.' So we continued talking and walking the great part of the day, until at last Mr. Henderland, after expressing his delight in my company and satisfaction at meeting with a friend of Mr. Campbell's, whom, says he, I will make bold to call that sweet singer of our covenanted Zion, proposed that I should make a short stage and stay the night in his house a little beyond King Ehrlich. To say the truth, I was overjoyed, for I had no great desire for John of the Claymore, and since my double misadventure, first with the guide, and next with the gentleman's skipper, I stood in some fear of any highland stranger. Accordingly, we shook hands upon the bargain, and came in the afternoon to a small house, standing alone by the shore of the Lynn Loch. The sun was already gone from the desert mountains of Ardgore upon the hither side, but shone on those of Appen on the farther, and the loch lay as still as a lake. Only the gulls were crying round the sides of it, and the whole place seemed solemn and uncouth. We had no sooner come to the door of Mr. Henderland's dwelling than to my great surprise, for I was now used to the politeness of Highlanders. He burst rudely past me, dashed into the room, caught up a jar and a small horn-spoon, and began ladling snuff into his nose in most excessive quantities. Then he had a hearty fit of sneezing, and looked round upon me with a rather silly smile. "'It's a vow I took,' says he. "'I took a vow upon me that I would not carry it. Doubtless it's a great privation, but when I think upon the martyrs, not only to the Scottish covenant, but to other points of Christianity. I think shame to mind it. As soon as we had eaten, and porridge and whey was the best of the good man's diet, he took a grave face and said he had a duty to perform by Mr. Campbell, and that was to inquire into my state of mind towards God. I was inclined to smile at him since the business of the snuff, but he had not spoken long before he brought the tears into my eyes. There are two things that men should never weary of, goodness and humility. We get none too much of them in this rough world among cold, proud people. But Mr. Henderland had their very speech upon his tongue. And though I was a good deal puffed up with my adventures, and having come off, as the saying is, with flying colors, yet he soon had me on my knees beside a simple poor old man, and both proud and glad to be there. Before we went to bed, he offered me sixpence to help me on my way, out of a scanty store he kept in the turf wall of his house, at which excess of goodness... I knew not what to do. But at last he was so earnest with me that I thought it the more mannerly part to let him have his way. 
and so left him poorer than myself. We'll return with Chapter 17 right after these sponsor messages. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And now, Chapter 17, The Death of the Red Fox. The next day, Mr. Henderland found for me a man who had a boat of his own and was to cross the Linlock that afternoon into Appen, fishing. Him he prevailed on to take me, for he was one of his flock, and in this way I saved a long day's travel and the price of two public ferries I must otherwise have passed. It was near noon before we set out, a dark day with clouds and the sun shining upon little patches. The sea was here very deep and still, and had scarce a wave upon it, so that I must put the water to my lips before I could believe it to be truly salt. The mountains on either side were high, rough and barren, very black and gloomy in the shadow of the clouds, but all silver-laced with little watercourses where the sun shone upon them. It seemed a hard country, this of Appen, for people to care as much about as Alan did. There was but one thing to mention. A little after we had started, the sun shone upon a little moving clump of scarlet close in among the waterside to the north. It was much of the same red as soldiers' coats. Every now and then, too, there came little sparks and lightings, as though the sun had struck upon bright steel. I asked my boatman what it should be, and he answered he supposed it was some of the red soldiers coming from Fort William into Appen, against the poor tenantry of the country. Well, it was a sad sight to me, and whether it was because of my thoughts of Alan, or from something prophetic in my bosom, although this was but the second time I had seen King George's troops, I had no good will toward them. At last we came so near the point of land at the entering in of Loch Levin that I begged to be set on shore. My boatman, who was an honest fellow and mindful of his promise to the catechist, would fain have carried me on to Balakulish, but as this was to take me further from my secret destination, I insisted, and was set on shore at last under the wood of Lettermore, or Lettervor, for I've heard it both ways, in Allen's country of Appen. There was a wood of birches growing on a steep, craggy side of a mountain that overhung the lock. It had many openings and ferny howls, and a road or bridle track ran north and south through the midst of it, by the edge of which, where there was a spring, I sat down to eat some oat bread of Mr. Henderland's and think upon my situation. Here I was not only troubled by a cloud of stinging midges, but far more by the doubts of my mind. What I ought to do? Why I was going to join myself with an outlaw and would-be murderer like Alan? Whether I should not be acting more like a man of sense to tramp back to the South Country direct, by my own guidance and at my own charges, and what Mr. Campbell or even Mr. Henderland would think of me if they should ever learn my folly and presumption. These were the doubts that now began to come in on me stronger than ever. As I was so sitting and thinking, a sound of men and horses came to me through the wood, and presently after, at the turning of the road, I saw four travelers come into view. The way was in this part so rough and narrow that they came single and led their horses by the reins. The first was a great, red-headed gentleman, of an imperious and plushed face, who carried his hat in his hand and fanned himself, for he was in a breathing heat. The second, by his decent black garb and white wig, 
I correctly took to be a lawyer. The third was a servant, and wore some part of his clothes in tartan, which showed that his master was of a highland family, and either an outlaw or else in singular good odor with the government, since the wearing of tartan was against the act. If I had been better versed in these things, I would have known the tartan to be that of the argyle or Campbell colors. This servant had a good-sized portmanteau strapped on his horse, and a net of lemons to brew punch with, hanging at the saddle-bow, as was often enough the custom with luxurious travelers in that part of the country. As for the fourth who brought up the tail, I had seen his like before, and I knew him at once to be a sheriff's officer. I had no sooner seen these people coming than I made up my mind, for no reason that I can tell, to go through with my adventure, and when the first came alongside of me, I rose up from the bracken and asked him the way to Ockham. He stopped and looked at me, as I thought, a little oddly, and then turning to the lawyer, Mungo, said he, as many a man would think this more of a warning than two piats. Here I am on my road to Duror on the job you can, and here as a young lad starts up out of the bracken, and spears if I'm on the way to Ockham. Glenyer, said the other, this is not a subject for jesting. These two had now drawn close up and were gazing at me, while the two followers had halted about a stone cast in the rear. And what seek ye in Ockham? said Colin Roy Campbell of Glenyer, him they called the Red Fox. For he it was that I had stopped. The man that lives there, said I. James of the Glens, said Glenyer, musingly, and then to the lawyer. Is he gathering his people, think ye? Anyway, says the lawyer, we should do better to bide where we are, and let the soldiers rally us. If you are concerned for me, said I, I am neither of his people nor yours, but an honest subject of King George, owing no man, and fearing no man. Why, very well said, replies the factor. But if I may make so bold as ask, what does this honest man so far from his country? And why does he come seeking the brother of Argeo? I have power here. I must tell you, I am king's factor upon several of these estates, and have twelve files of soldiers at my back. I have heard a waif word in the country, said I, a little nettled, that you were a hard man to drive. He still kept looking at me, as if in doubt. Well, said he, at last, your tongue is bold, but I am no unfriend to plainness. If ye had asked me the way to the door of James Stewart on any other day but this, I would have set ye right and bidden ye Godspeed. But today... "'Eh, Mungo?' "'And he turned again to look at the lawyer. "'But just as he turned, "'there came the shot of a firelock from higher up the hill, "'and with the very sound of it, "'Glenyer fell upon the road. "'Oh, I am dead!' he cried, several times over. "'The lawyer had caught him up and held him in his arms, "'the servant standing over and clasping his hands. "'And now the wounded man looked from one to the other "'with scared eyes, and there was a change in his voice "'that went to the heart. "'Take care of yourselves.' said he. I'm dead. He tried to open his clothes as if to look for the wound, but his fingers slipped on the buttons. With that he gave a great sigh, his head rolled on his shoulder, and he passed away. The lawyer never said another word, but his face was as sharp as a pen and as white as the dead man's. The servant broke out into a great noise of crying and weeping like a child, and I, on my side, stood staring at them in a kind of horror. The sheriff's officer had run back at the first sound of the shot to hasten the coming of the soldiers. At last the lawyer laid down the dead man and his blood upon the road and got to his own feet with a kind of stagger. 
I believe it was his movement that brought me to my senses, for he had no sooner done so than I began to scramble up the hill, crying out, The murderer! The murderer! So a little time had elapsed that when I got to the top of the first steepness and could see some part of the open mountain, the murderer was still moving away at no great distance. He was a big man in a black coat with metal buttons and carried a long fowling piece. Here, I cried, I see him! At that the murderer gave a little quick look over his shoulder and began to run. The next moment he was lost in a fringe of birches. Then he came out again on the upper side, where I could see him climbing like a jackanapes, for that part was again very steep, and then he dipped behind a shoulder, and I saw him no more. All this time I had been running on my side, and had got a good way up, when a voice cried upon me to stand. I was at the edge of the upper wood, and so now, when I halted and looked back, I saw all the open part of the hill below me. The lawyer and the sheriff's officer were standing just above the road, crying and waving on me to come back, and on their left the redcoats, musket in hand, were beginning to struggle singly out of the lower wood. "'Why should I come back?' I cried. "'Come you on!' Ten pounds if you take that lad!' cried the lawyer. "'He's an accomplice. He was posted here to hold us in talk.' At that word, which I could hear quite plainly, though it was to the soldiers and not to me that he was crying it, my heart went to my mouth with quite a new kind of terror. Indeed, it is one thing to stand the danger of your life, and quite another to run the peril of both life and character. The thing besides had come so suddenly, like thunder out of a clear sky, that I was all amazed and helpless. The soldiers began to spread, some of them to run, and others to put up their pieces and cover me, and still I stood. "'Ducking here among the trees,' said a voice close by. Indeed, I scarce knew what I was doing, but I obeyed, and as I did so, I heard the firelocks bang and the balls whistle in the birches. Just inside the shelter of the trees, I found Alan Brick standing with a fishing rod. He gave me no salutation. Indeed, it was no time for civilities. Only, come, says he, and set off running along the side of the mountain towards Belaelish, and I, like a sheep, followed him. Now we ran among the birches, now stooping behind low humps on the mountainside, now crawling on all fours among the heather. The place was deadly. My heart seemed bursting against my ribs, and I had neither time to think nor breath to speak with. Only I remember seeing with wonder that Alan every now and then would straighten himself to his full height and look back, and every time he did so there came a great faraway cheering and crying of the soldiers. A quarter of an hour later Alan stopped, clapped down flat in the heather, and turned to me. "'Now,' said he, "'it's earnest. "'Do as I do, to save your life.' "'And at the same speed, "'but now with infinitely more precaution, "'we traced back again across the mountainside "'by the same way that we had come, "'only perhaps higher, "'till at last Alan threw himself down "'in the upper wood of Lettermore, "'where I had found him at the first, "'and lay, with his face in the bracken, "'panting like a dog. "'My own side so ached, "'my head so swam, "'my tongue so hung out of my mouth "'with heat and dryness,' that I lay beside him like one dead. Join us next week for chapters 18 and 19 of Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. If you're an Apple or a Stitcher listener, please do stop a moment and send us a review for 1001 Stories for the Road. We would appreciate that very much, and it helps new listeners find us. Also, please share our stories with others. Thank you so much for being listeners and fans of our show. We'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. 